This morning, Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75 this morning. Let me pray before we open the Word together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have not left us to our own devices. And that as we sit here this morning, that we can hear Your voice. We pray that it would be a resounding voice in this room as we hear the Scriptures read and as we hear them preached. And we plead with You, O Lord, that You would wrestle with us as we sit here this morning, and we pray that as you wrestle with us, that you would indeed win. Would you stamp upon our souls the truth of your eternal word, and may we know that we've encountered you, the living God. May you wound each of us as we have need to be wounded. May you heal us as we have need to be healed. Would you encourage us as we have need to be encouraged? Would you humble us where we need to be humbled? Would you exhort us where we need to be exhorted? Would you strengthen us where we need to be strengthened? You know each heart, you know each soul, and you alone can minister to every single person in this room and online. We pray that you would do so by the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wish we understood our weakness. It would save us a lot of trials. It would save us a lot of trouble. There are those who are outside the church, and they look at the church, and they think the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites because 
we don't quite live what we profess, if only they understood weakness. I think there are many that are within the church that are Christians that are walking around in sullenness and a kind of melancholy and even depression because of the guilt and the shame of their sin. If only they had a better understanding of weakness in Christ. There are others who are in the church and they think much more highly of themselves than they ought. It would save themselves and the rest of us a lot of trials if they understood their weakness in Christ. There are those who have wandered from God and been steeped in sin and they feel like they are too far gone. They have been abandoned and they don't return. They don't come back to the church. They don't come back to Christ. If only they understood the weakness of our flesh. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what category you're in or maybe some other category. This is a passage that speaks to every single one of us in this room. Every single one of us. I want to look this morning at the denials of Peter. He's got three denials, so we'll look at those denials, but then I want to look at three points in light of those denials. So we're going to look at the denials and then three points that stem from those denials. We come to this first denial. We have Peter. He is in the courtyard. You will remember those of you who were here last week that we are in a house and or in some kind of building structure where Jesus has been brought before the Sanhedrin and before the high priest and he is being put on trial. This is the Supreme Court, if you will, of the religious establishment. And he is in the building on trial and it is a square building and in the middle is a courtyard. And Peter has wandered into this courtyard as his Lord is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, and while he is there in the courtyard, he is approached by a girl. The word used there could be that this girl was a slave. If she wasn't a slave, she was surely a servant. And at this time, it would be very likely, if not almost a guarantee, that she is at most 15 years old. She is maybe 9 or 10 years old. And the servant girl, she approaches Peter out in this courtyard and she says to him that she's seen him before. This isn't the first time she has seen him. She saw him before. And when did she see him before? She saw him with Jesus the Galilean. And Peter immediately responds and he denies it. His first denial. We then have the second denial. Peter clearly not only quickly responds to the servant girl, but he quickly extricates himself from the situation with her and he retreats. He retreats from the center of the courtyard and he goes to the entrance of the courtyard. I think if we are going to reconcile the accounts in the rest of the Gospels in both John and Luke, they speak of there being this gathering around a fire. And so it seems likely to me that what Peter is doing is he is retreating into the shadows. There hopefully nobody will see him and identify him. But when he retreats to the entrance of the courtyard and into the shadows, it's another servant girl 
that approaches him. And she says to others that are within the hearing of Peter, she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, for the second time, Peter denies his Savior. He says, I do not know the man. In his first denial, he denies that he was with Jesus. In his second denial, he denies even knowing Jesus. Sin left unchecked will always progress. It's like rabbits. It just multiplies. And it progresses. In the third denial, some of these bystanders, maybe those from the first encounter, but more likely from the second encounter, they then approach Peter. They have heard him speak, and his dialect has given him away. They know him to have been with Jesus of Galilee from his dialect. I have a friend who is Scottish, one of my closest friends. I love to make fun of him because of his Scottish accent. Uh, don't tell him. It's actually because I'm jealous. Don't want him to know that. Uh, but I sent him a video a couple of days ago of a American woman who is dating a Scottish man. And she has her iPhone, and you can see her face, and you can see him behind her, and she has given him a list of words that she wants him to say with his Scottish accent, words that he can't say. There's words like burger, and burglary, and murder, and barrel, and then to cap it all off, she gives him the word regularly. I can't even say it. He will try 15 times to say regularly regularly. And he can't do it. He's just all over the place. And he finally says, ah, what do I even sound like? And she says, it sounds like you're gurgling water. And she's just laughing hysterically. My friend, when I sent it to him, he texted me back and he said, that man's from Glasgow, the same city I'm from. He's just from a different part of the city. He just heard his accent. And he says he's from the same city as me, but a different part of the city. He could hear it. These bystanders, they could tell where Peter was from. Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And here Peter reaches a new height of sinfulness. Matthew tells us that he invoked a curse on himself. He called down judgment if he was lying and said, I do not know the man. This isn't what we would expect from Peter. This isn't what we'd expect from the Bible. Haven't you wondered when you read this account in the Gospels, haven't you wondered why Peter? Why is it Peter? Seems like James the Lesser or Thaddeus or Andrew, disciples we know very little of, that they would have been a better candidate for denying Jesus and fleeing from him like this. Or at least make it Thomas the Doubter. It fits with his persona. But it's Peter. Why Peter? All well, four Gospels record this failing of Peter and 
so many accuse the Bible of being a work of propaganda and a work of imagination, but Peter is one of the great heroes of our faith, and no one would record this account in this book unless this book was true. It's Peter. But why Peter? It's because Peter is the best of the best. He's the best of the best. That's our first point from the text this morning. Even the best of disciples are simply weak sinners in continual need of their Savior. Even the best of disciples are simply weak sinners in continual need of their Savior. If you would, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look back to chapter 26. And in chapter 26, if you go back to verses 31, 32, but then especially verse 33, right before verse 33, Jesus has said that He, as the shepherd, is going to be struck. And when He is struck, that all the sheep are going to scatter. And then you get this in verse 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This is Peter-esque. This is what we expect from Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He is bold. He is a man of bold faith. And we see this time and again throughout the Scriptures and throughout the Gospels when all the rest of the disciples are cowering in the boat. It is Peter who steps out of the boat in faith and walks upon the water to Jesus. When they're at Caesarea Philippi and they are gathered, all the disciples there before Jesus, and He says to them, who do you say that I am? It's Peter in his bold faith that says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When they are on the Mount of Transfiguration, the very inner circle of the disciples, John and James and Peter, the best of the best. When they're up on that Mount Transfiguration with Jesus and He is there glorified and He's meeting with Moses and Elijah come down from heaven and there's a voice from heaven of the Father. A place that would silence anybody. It's Peter. In an act of kind of bold faith, though foolish, says, why don't we make this a camp out and pitch three tents and stay here forever? It's Peter, who we saw just a couple of weeks ago, that when the crowd comes to arrest Jesus and take away their Lord, all the disciples are there. It's Peter who takes out his sword and brandishes it to defend his Savior. He's not just a man of faith. He's not just simply one of the disciples. He's the best of the disciples. He's a disciple of bold faith. After his bold promise, Jesus tells Peter there in chapter 26, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is ever confident, he is ever bold, he's seemingly ever committed, but truly in foolishness, he responds to Jesus and he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that even the best of disciples are simply weak sinners in continual need of their Savior, but he's about to understand. 
All his boasts were simply hot air. I love how one commentator described it. They said that Peter, that these bystanders that come up to him and the two servant girls that come up to him, the commentator said, were like small pins stuck into a large balloon, and Peter's world exploded in a roar of oaths and a flood of bitter tears. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had just taught Peter that the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're never stronger in Christ than when we understand ourselves to be weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or as Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I I am content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Be a student of your weaknesses. You're weak. The Puritans used to preach on this, and they would often talk about this and practice this. They, they were students of their weaknesses. They understood that they were weak sinners in need of a constant Savior. And they would admonish those that they preached to. They would tell them that you should, when you lay down on your bed every night, you should rehearse your day and go through where it was that you faltered and where it was that you sinned. One of my... One of our elders this morning pulled me aside after the first service and he said, so what I hear you saying is I need to go to bed at 6.30 p.m. No, though it sounds good. Uh, It's not a rehearsing of your day to be overly introspective, to be morose, to lead yourself into some kind of melancholy but so that you might recognize where it is that you are weak in Christ, where it is that I've sinned against Christ, so that when I wake up in the morning tomorrow, I can be on guard against those things. Confess those things on my bed at night so that I know and receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ before I go to sleep and my soul can be quiet while I sleep through the night. Know your weaknesses. Be a student of your weaknesses. Second, I want us to see that the greatest sorrows come when we wander in this weakness. The greatest sorrows come when we wander in this weakness. When Peter committed his third denial, he is immediately convicted. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus looked at Peter after this third denial. Maybe there was a window That was part of the building that Jesus was sitting in front of that window or standing in front of it while he was on trial and he could look down in the courtyard. But it says that their eyes locked that as Peter commits this third denial that he looks up and he sees his Savior looking at him. And immediately the former words of his Lord now flood him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Isn't it true when we wander from the Lord, this is often what happens? We fall into some kind of sin that we know shouldn't be there, and then what happens is we have immediate conviction, and what is it? It is the Word of the Lord that comes to our minds that we know that we should have not have wandered in this way, we should not have breached this, we should not have gone into this, and then it feels as if what Peter experienced, we feel like the Lord's gaze is upon us. And there's just a sorrow. It's just a grief. But there's grace in this. The sorrow Peter experienced, the sorrow we experience, it's an evidence of faith. Peter is gripped by grief. And the conviction comes, Matthew tells us, quote, he went out and he wept bitterly. You see, it wasn't that he hated Christ and therefore wandered in this way and denied Christ three times. It wasn't because he hated Him. It was simply because he was weak and he gave in. And these are the tears of grief over his sin. These are tears of faith. He knows what he has done and he knows against whom he has done it. So he weeps. The greatest sorrow comes when we wander from God. And we don't tend to understand this until we experience it. Often think of that parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And the prodigal son, he wants his father's inheritance so he can go off and be out from underneath his father. He thinks that what promises him outside of his father's house, that there are all kinds of promises of freedom and joy and delight. But all that he finds at the end of that robe is, road is bondage and sorrow and misery. He had to experience it. How many wander from God their Father, Christ their Savior, and the church of God thinking there are better things over there only to find that they're at the dead end of a bitter road of weeping? I've often thought of these two passages together, the passage we will look at next week where we will tackle the issue of Judas and his betrayal. But they're very similar, aren't they? aren't they? We have this Peter and we have this Judas, both disciples, both sinners, both denying their Lord. But there's one drastic difference, and it makes all the difference. Peter weeps. Judas doesn't. He weeps. He knows that he has offended his Lord. And he weeps and he turns back to him. Our adversary rejoices when you find yourself stuck thinking you are too far gone. You can't overcome the embarrassment of what you've done, wandering from Christ, or the guilt and the shame of what you've done is too great. He rejoices that He's got you stuck in that muck and mire of shame and guilt. And Jesus says to you, just come. That's what He says, just come. St. Augustine greatest theologian the church has ever seen once said this. He said, there is no saint without a past. 
There is no sinner without a future. There's no saint without a past. And every sinner has a future in Christ. Jesus says, return to me, come to me, all you who are labor weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus had said to Peter before his denials, he had told them that this would happen. He tells Peter that this will occur. He tells Peter in Luke 22, the parallel account though, this interesting thing. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You aren't too far gone, Peter. Why? It's not because of you. It's not because of your hold on Christ, but Christ's hold on you that is your hope. Jesus will not let Peter go. He says he's praying for him. And what did he pray? He prayed, quote, that your faith may not fail. What is his he keeps? He never lets it go. Which leads to our final point. Though we are weak, he who is strong holds us fast. Though we are weak, he who is strong holds us fast. Now we look at the scene and we think, ah, don't know. Peter denied you three times, Jesus. It sure seems like he failed. This little girl walks up to him and he denies you. Another little girl walks up to him and he denies you. Bystanders walk up to him and he denies you. Did Jesus' prayers fail? Did his prayers for Peter fail? He said, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Did Jesus' prayers fail? Can the great shepherd of the sheep who knows the weaknesses of his sheep, can his prayers ascending up to the Father somehow be inept, somehow be poor, somehow not accomplish their purposes? We say, no, a thousand times no over and over. Then what of these denials? His faith did not fail. It faltered. His faith faltered. And every saint's faith falters. You feel like your faith has faltered? You're in good company because every single saint's faith falters. Even the most mature man or woman in Christ has but a weak faith. It's never what it should be. But Peter, you see, continues as a man of faith. He, he wandered, but he wasn't lost. He was wayward, but he wasn't forsaken. Jesus said to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says to him, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You will not be too far gone, Peter, after these denials. The seed of faith is still there. You need but turn back to me. And then you know what? You go out and you serve. You serve me and you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are weak, but he who is strong holds us fast.
This is especially interesting to me in the midst of our current milieu, cultural milieu that we're in. We live in a society that has become increasingly quick to abandon those who don't do what we want them to do or don't do as we think they should do or don't do as we require them to do. We even have a term for it now that's developed over the last number of years. We cancel them. People say we live in a cancel culture now. You say something in the present that shouldn't have been said and you're just disregarded. You're thrown to the curb. No longer can you be part of this or part of us or be listened to. It's even worse now in the last couple of years. It's not just what you say in the present. It could be what you have said dozens of years before. Jeopardy, for goodness sakes, can't find a host. Because every single person that they tap on the shoulder, they have said something stupid on social media years ago. And so they're canceled. Where there is no grace, law is the only answer. When there's no grace, it is only law that is left in that toolbox, and every single thing looks like a nail then. And so you hammer it. If you don't live up to the standard, you're hammered. But Jesus extends grace. He extends grace. It's in moments like this when we get a glimpse of our extreme sinfulness, that the cross no longer seems like something nice and sentimental, but rather it shines as something that is essential and that is transforming. It's not just a nice thought. This shapes then everything about me. One of my favorite accounts in all of the Scriptures is at the end of the Gospel of John. I think I could preach on that every week for six months if you would let me. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and His glorified body is on the beach with this outspoken disciple, Peter. And he's walking with him on the beach. And the dialogue between them is, oh, it is just stirring. Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son, Simon, do you love me more than these? There's no denial there from Peter this time. Peter immediately answers his Lord. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers without hesitation a second time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? John tells us in that account that in that moment when Jesus asked the question for a third time that 
that Peter is overcome with grief. He's experiencing grief again. But this time his Savior is leading him into the grief. You can understand the grief. He has denied his Savior three times, and now his Savior is asking him, do you love me? And he's asked him three times, and it feels as if Jesus doesn't believe Simon. And we would say he has every right not to believe Simon. But that's not why he asks him three times. It's not because he doubts his love for him. It's because he wants to shower him with grace. He wants him to experience grace. So he leads him through this threefold profession, just as he had a threefold denial, so that he would know you're not partially forgiven, Peter. You're wholly forgiven. You're mine. holds his own fast. Do you love me? He asked the third time, Peter. No doubt with tears streaming down his face, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter's forgiven, but he is more than forgiven. He is restored, but he is more than restored. After each profession on the beach, Jesus gives instructions to Peter so often missed. He's not just forgiving him. He's not just restoring him. He says after each one of Peter's professions that, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The Lord says to him each time, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What is he saying to Peter? He's saying, you are not a second-class citizen going forward. I'm not taking you because of your faltering and putting you on the back shelf. No, you're forgiven. You're restored. And now you are to go out and you are to serve me and you are to serve the church. Peter is not to wallow in his weakness. Shame on any Christian who uses their weakness to continue in sin as if it's an excuse. Shame on them. No, Peter will out of love for his Savior and true thankfulness, he will seek to grow daily in Christ-likeness. Christians don't wallow. We acknowledge our weakness and then in dependence upon Christ, we look to Christ not relying upon our own strength. We've already seen that we falter, but we recognize our weakness and so we look to Him in faith and then we go forward in faith serving Him to His glory for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the benefit of the world that we live in. We keep going on. Keep on keeping on. One pastor who has a lot of connections and fellow pastors and Christians in Afghanistan, I was reading a letter that he sent out uh, last week where he was detailing the conversations that he had with people. And in this letter, he said this, he said, every church leader who has emailed me or texted me has asked that we would pray we would pray for the Lord to strengthen them in their faith, 
that they would, quote, stay strong in the Lord, who is the sovereign king, end quote, as one put it. What do they understand? They understand their weakness. But they understand more than their weakness. They understand his strength. And they understand more than just his strength. They understand that their fellow brothers and sisters praying for them, looking in dependence upon this strong one above, can grant them strength in the midst. He will not let any of his go. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He has you. Holding you. So much so that the writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 6, verse 11, he will call it the full assurance of hope. The certainty of our salvation is not based upon our unsullied, consistent faithfulness, but Christ. And there is full assurance of hope, he says. Not wishful thinking, not mere conjecturing, not partial. Christians have the full assurance of hope. So much so that he will go on just a few verses later and he will say that we have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's an anchor. We have an anchor for our soul. And it's not us. It's him. And whatever storm comes, it can't be uprooted. Peter faltered. He did not fail. Why? Why, why? why does Peter go through all of this? We could say yes as an example for us. It's to show us that the very best of the best are still weak sinners. But why, why for Peter's sake? Ask you this, how was Peter to know his own weakness? And how was he to know the power and the grace of God apart from going through the trials of His faith faltering. And then here's the application. How are you to know? How are you to know your weakness? And how are you to know the grace and the power of God unless you are led through various trials and various tribulations where you find that your faith is faltering? How do you know? That's a mercy. Assurance of our salvation comes, as John Newton, the pastor and hymn writer, reminded a friend in a letter from through various trials. He's called them repeated experimental proofs of the Lord's power and goodness to save. Repeated experimental proofs of the Lord's power and goodness to save. We don't want it. I don't want to experience it. We labor to falter less easily, but as long as we are in this flesh and as long as we are in this world and as long as we have an adversary that is seeking to cause us to fall, we will falter at times. But there's loving grace here because we'd never know His power and we'd never know His grace and we would never know our own weakness if we weren't led through it time and time again. 
Newton says, when we have been brought low and have been helped, when we are wounded deeply and are healed, when we are cast down and our head is lifted up, when we have been brought to the end of ourselves to a point of hopelessness and then lifted to safety, it is in such moments that we find ourselves more readily looking to Christ. And it's when this has happened, not just once and not just a few times, but as he says, a thousand times. A thousand times that you and I begin to simply trust in the promises of God and His power to uphold them. Peter is learning that he is weak. And he's learning that Christ is strong. And that will benefit him for the rest of his ministry, and it will benefit him for the rest of his life, and it will benefit the church through the ages. Do you keep an eye on yourself? Keep one eye on yourself. Examine your weaknesses. Where is it you falter in the faith? Maybe turn in to bed at 6.30 some night every once in a while. But to quote Robert Murray McShane, that great Scottish Presbyterian pastor, he said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. So you keep one eye on yourself, your weaknesses, and you take ten looks at Christ, who is strong. That's what it looks like to live as a Christian, as a sinner and a saint. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God who keeps your people, that there is none that is greater than you that can snatch us out of your hands. We pray that even the scary prayer, the prayer that we hesitate to pray, that you would show us more of our weaknesses so that we might see more of your strength, that we might know more of your power and know more of your grace. Keep our eyes fixed upon our Savior, looking for that day when we shall be brought up into the heavens we shall no longer have to do battle with this flesh and with this world and with our adversary. And truly, we shall be strong in our Savior forevermore, no longer failing, not even faltering. We long for that day and pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Until then, hold us fast. In Christ's name, amen.